This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff you're here to talk about in this episode include... Role-playing divination. Chinese art heists. Lampreys. And magic versus self-driving cars. As our beloved and sleekly accessorized listeners well know, our heads are full of ideas for games. Uh, Sorry, I can't hear you over all these game ideas. If you are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games bubbling in your cranial region. But unlike excruciatingly humble podcast hosting game designers like ourselves, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue. The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It contains a ton of generic components. Like meeples, cubes, dice, tokens, and discs. And includes a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing. With topics like... Refining your design. Playtesting. Crowdfunding. And how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. Seriously, I can't even hear you over these game ideas. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And it's as though we've seen it before. Uh, I guess we have seen it before, like 300 times before, but we've seen this specific roll of the dice and this specific uh, layout of miniatures, and we know that this specific version of uh, the Frampton Comes Alive album has got a mustard stain on it from hot dog night because we predicted that mustard stain ages ago we had a terrible dream about it. it we did it was a terrible dream what if what if i was having my hot dog and and there were no sport peppers anyway <laughs> um uh enough of that uh this is not the horror hut this is the gaming hut because patreon backer rob toll asks us do you have advice on how a gm might allow players to have divination or precognition in a mystery without breaking the mystery completely yet still let them those powers be useful for the players robin i'm sure you have advice because that is literally our purpose here on the podcast and certainly here within the hut so unload it for Rob, won't you? So as usual, uh, the first thing you can start doing is look at how uh, precognition or uh, visions or prophecies or what have you are used in uh, media mysteries. Only the Canadians will get the following reference. Uh, there's a co- show called Seeing Things uh, in the uh, that ran for most of the 80s uh, in Canada. Uh, featured Louis Del Grande, who other genre fans may know as the uh, guy whose head exploded in uh, uh, Scanners. And uh, the uh, premise of that show was that he was a bumbling journalist, uh, you know, sort of a typical hapless dweeb archetype. Uh, but he had post-cognitive powers so that he could see in bits and pieces uh, the crime of the week that he was investigating. And this led to a structural problem in that you were just waiting for him to get all the visions he needed to put the pieces together and solve the mystery. And I think some other shows uh, who have give, had psychic detectives 
have fallen into that same trap. So this is a, a salutary uh, example to avoid the thing that Rob is trying to not do, which is make the uh, psychic powers, uh, the ability to uh, detect the future or see the past or what have you, that they don't overwhelm everybody else's abilities. So, for example, in the Yellow King role-playing game, one of the gumshoe games, there is an intuition power, and whenever I put this power in a mystery... Uh, there's similar ones in Mutant City Blues, uh, players and GMs will get back to me going, I'm afraid that this is too powerful. But the answer is, is that this is the only as powerful as the GM wants it to be because it is the GM's hint ability. Uh, so the answer is that, uh, or beginning answer at any rate, is you get bits and pieces of something, but it's just enough to move you on to the next thing, and it's not a replacement for any other ability, so that you get a, as much use out of it as... Uh, the other players get from their mundane abilities, whether that's library use or forensic entomology or, or whatever it is. And it doesn't show you everything. It just shows you uh, glimpses and, and flashes. And uh, and then we can continue to, to drill down from there. Ken, do you have a, a divergent piece of advice? Yeah, I have a, a parallel piece of advice, which is uh, to go to media. The classic example, the Lord Darcy Investigates Mysteries by uh, Randall Garrett that had a magical detective who went around magically detecting things. He wasn't magical, but his sidekick was. Uh, Dr. Seamus could do magic and reconstruct pieces of the crime and and uh, put a sympathy spell on the bullet and do all kinds of other cool stuff, which, uh, not coincidentally, simply replaced DNA tests and luminol and all the other good stuff. So when you are doing divination magic in a non-technological mystery world, the divination does just what ballistics tests do. You can say, this wound was committed, the gods tell me, by a knife wielded by a left-handed man who stood slightly behind and to the left of the person, and that kind of thing. And that's what the divination is good for, is it replaces technology. And in some cases, it can give you information like, they're a Virgo. And it's like, well, all right, that narrows the suspect list down. But it doesn't say... Lord Sandringham, he's what done it. And even if you had a precognitive vision in which you dreamed of Lord Sandringham stabbing somebody, then the mystery is not no longer did Lord Sandringham stab a guy, but how can we prove it? Or where is Lord Sandringham run off to to be hidden? Or was that actually Lord Sandringham? Or since he has a ironclad alibi uh, backed up by the priests of Mitra with whom he was playing uh, skiffle ball, then maybe it's Maybe it's someone who's got shape-shifting magic and they are trying to look like Lord Sandringham and mess with, and mess with his reputation. And, and now we have a new mystery going on. Adam braiding on what you said, the revelations from the gods are revelations from the GM and they reveal what the GM has in control. Those actually add, uh, maybe not to the mystification, but they add to the flavor of the story going on because it lets you sort of cut off ridiculous red herrings that, oh my God, I know that they're going to spend forever investigating the fact that the butler used to be a pirate. Let's just have the magic clear the butler completely. Yes, your psychic vision rules things out. So yes. That, uh, you get a, a terrifying vision of the butler at home at the time of the crime polishing silverware. Right. Okay. And uh, in in uh, your sort of X-Files, the modern day mysteries, um, we all know that the precognitives never actually come out and say anything useful. They say, I see a red house by a lake. And so it's like, great, we know that there's going to be a red house by a lake. So when we, the other clues lead us to the red house by the lake, we will go in and break in without a warrant 
because we know that the psychic vision has led us here and we won't let the bad guy maybe get away or, or burn up some other clues because our psychic vision gave us valuable help, but it didn't like just lead us by the nose to a red house by the lake and the address is, well, it's the old Culbertson place out on rural route nine. You have to kind of bear left at the, at, at the, at the Sinclair gas station. And then you have about four miles. If you, if you pass the bridge, you've gone too far. That's not how those visions work. They just sort of give you a revelation and then you have to sort of uh, zero in on that revelation. And often it becomes relevant in the moment and confirms you in an action as opposed to dragging you towards some plot point. Yes. You suddenly look Look up, and there, uh, up on the bluff, is the red hut. Mm-hmm. And then the the thing uh, leaps from the bushes and and tackles you. And you, oh yeah, I guess we're in the right place because yep. uh, a red hut, b being tackled by a humped thing. And of course, uh, if you think of the way that psychics in uh, actual life uh, describe uh, your future to you, they do so in relatively vague terms, so that uh, things, uh, all sorts of things, can be true. So you know, one possibility is that. Uh, you know, you could give a clue like, I'm seeing water, I'm seeing a body, you're seeing a body of water, and you're, you're seeing ripples. And then you could plan, there's two different things in the mystery, where there's a, uh, you know, there's a riverbank, and there's also a, a pool in the professor's backyard. And depending on which way the investigators choose to go, you can chalk either one of them up to the fact that there was a, a successful prophecy that the player character got. Also, uh, that sort of points to the fact that you get information in visual terms. So you could just, you know, show them a weird illustration and say, here's your vision. Here's the weird thing that you saw. And uh, it's kind of blurry. And but it looks like there's, you know, oh, yeah, there's a, a red, a red hut up on the up on the moors. And there's a, a briar down below. But uh, so once you get there, you know, you are somewhere important and then you can take uh, prep preparations but it doesn't tell you you know oh yeah it was it was colonel mustard again uh, he got a candlestick after he got that parole guy. and he went on a candlestick rampage and uh you'll find him uh at 392 uh, west davenport street and uh here's the passcode for the alarm that's that's not how prophecies work another fun thing that you can do is you can give a, a prophecy that seems to point to one thing but instead points to the other so that you uh you know, you, you get a vision of Colonel Mustard, uh, investing in his candlesticks, but instead, uh, when you get there, you realize that, uh, Colonel Mustard was framed in the previous case and is taking his candlesticks to, uh, give a good candlesticking to the person who framed him and that the real killer this time around is not, uh, Colonel Mustard at all. Yeah, the, um, the precognition in this case leads you to Colonel Mustard giving you the testimony that he's being framed and it doesn't lead you to the person who's being framed. And the other thing I suppose that these can do meta is that if they uh, reveal that, you know, some force is preventing your power from working, uh, that is not a complete lame out by the GM uh, or shouldn't be. Uh, it should be evidence that, oh, we can narrow it down to people who are powerful enough to overcome divination and precognition. So powerful psychics. We know that there's someone who's, um, uh, in league with the god of lies and, and that they're part of it. And so we just have to round up all the Loki cultists and start putting pressure on them and find out who's the, the big Loki man in town. And, uh, and that gives you a road into the mystery. It's, it's no different than, you know, occasionally in the dungeon you fight a monster that, uh, doesn't doesn't care about armor class. That's just the way that the, you know, the dice fall, right? Another thing you can do is make the prophecies useful for something other than uh, literally solving the mystery. So, for example, oh, you get a terrible vision in which uh, you have been shot. 
uh, and you, you know, you see a gloved hand and a, uh, silver plated Luger and the, and the gun go off. And then you, uh, see yourself, uh, looking down at your, uh, at your abdomen and a, a, a red wound spreading. And, uh, first of all, you want to establish sort of the rules of precognition in your world. Is it always right? Or does it just predict the most likely thing unless you or someone else who knows the prophecy does something to prevent it? So in that case, that's not a solution to the mystery, but it could tell you to put on your bulletproof vest. And so later on, you can stage a scene where the bad guy leaps from the behind the curtain to fire the silver luger at you, and the uh, the bullet uh, bounces off, and then you're able to give uh, give chase. And depending on where you are in the narrative, you either go and tackle the the bad guy who's you've already uh, solved the the mystery at that point, or if it's early enough in, you know, they turn out to be an accomplice of of somebody else or what have you. Yeah, the um the the, the use of those powers not necessarily to directly apply to the mystery, but to apply to the blowback or to apply to um, uh, some other danger that's going to happen. It, it might just be that the solution is behind uh, the toxic uh, uh, desert of death. And so your vision is how you can get through the toxic desert of death. You d- divine and it says only someone who breathes through the cloth of uh, Athena can go through the desert of death. And you're like, okay, let's find a cloth of Athena and cut it up into face masks and then we can go across. And that's something that's useful and gives you, you know, a, a moment of power as, as the diviner, but it doesn't short circuit the whole story. It in fact makes the story able to progress. So working with the divination and precognition to advance the story is, I think, maybe the sort of the smart judo play by the GM. Uh, you can also have visions that uh, contribute to your uh, getting information, but do not, are not directly information themselves. So uh, you could have a vision of a, you know, a child being uh, locked in a basement by his uh, cruel grandmother. And then once you meet uh, one of the mobsters involved in the case, you look at them and you reckon, oh no, that was, that's the mobster as a child. And you can sort of bond with them over the fact that you, uh, you know, you know what it's like to have a, a wicked grandmother. And then they give you the information. Oh yeah, it's down at the, the secret casino down by the lakefront. And so that didn't, directly tell you who did it, but it gives you leverage to gain another piece of information that contributes to the the uh, maze or ocean of clues that leads you to the uh, final uh, answer to the mystery much later. And uh, at this point, I'm getting a vision. I'm getting a vision of this podcast running over time. And in order to prevent that, uh, we're going to slink up to the next commercial and peer through it to see what lurks on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity. 
caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? It's once more time to look up on the wall to look at all the wanted posters and to turn on the police scanner because it's time for another segment of The Crime Blotter. Uh, this is another one of those cases where lots of people forwarded us uh, this link to a particular article in GQ magazine by Alex Palmer. Uh, I bet they also, a lot of people forwarded it to William Gibson. And when you forwarded it, it to me, Ken, you said, this is all the huts. Yes. Uh, so I, I put it in Crime Blotter. Uh, so Palmer's article asks, hey, who's uh, running all of these highly professional heists against uh, European museums in which particular works of Chinese art are uh, being stolen? And uh, they're very particular in that almost all of the works of art were uh, looted from the old Summer Palace. And uh, if you go all the way back to episode 26 of this here podcast, you can hear a Ken's Time Machine segment where Ken lays out what would be the plan to prevent the sacking of the old Summer Palace. But quickly, could you remind people uh, what that is and why that is so incredibly important in the history of China to today's uh, Chinese. Uh, the Summer Palace was the sort of personal preserve of the emp- of the emperor and the imperial family during the Manchu dynasty. It was a uh, enormous constructed garden. It uh, extended, you know, many palaces and many basically hand built landscapes. Uh, Eight hundred acres of art and uh, and compounds. And in eighteen sixty, uh, the Manchu emperor had basically uh, ignored the British and French attempts to uh, get uh, their ambassadors back and also simultaneously ignored the British and French attempts to get preferential treatment to opium sales. There's a lot of reasons that this war happens. And in 1860, he said, "Eh, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. So the British and French marched up to Peking, captured Peking, and uh, realized the emperor doesn't care about Peking. The emperor only cares about his solid gold goodies. So they marched out and burned it to the ground and looted the old um, uh, summer palace uh, while burning it to the ground, because why waste the loot, I guess, um, and uh, carried much of China's irreplaceable Manchu uh, art, and much of it was even older than Manchu art and had been put in the summer palace because it was sort of a museum as well as a, uh, a hangout. Um, and then they carted that back to Europe and it made its way into any number of European stately homes and fine art museums as uh, taxes on owners of stately homes forced them to repatriate them to themselves, not to China. Right. And even a chunk of this stuff just got carted off by individual soldiers. So yeah, it wasn't, right. Uh, entirely on the uh, level of uh, government looting, but a lot of it was. Yeah. I mean, the individual soldiers would cart it back and then magically, as though money had some sort of impact on class, became nobles. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, one of the great details from this story is that, um, among other things that uh, the British got, Queen Victoria got a a Pekingese dog, which was a 
new and exciting thing to have at that point. And she called it Looty. <laughs> As if there's, so in case there's any lack of awareness about what was going on. Say what you want about Queen Victoria. She had a pretty good sense of what her empire was doing. Right. So, um, since about 2010, there's been a, a rash of extremely professional criminal heists against such museums as uh, Drottingham Palace in Stockholm, the Code Museum in uh, Norway, which has been hit multiple times, Durham and Cambridge Universities uh, in uh, England, and of course, if we know anything about universities and uh, their their museums, we can assume that those were probably kind of easier because uh, one of the great scandals is how little money goes into preservation and security in a lot of smaller museums. And in fact, even in the case of the National Museum in Brazil, we see a case of, you know, incredible neglect of uh, cultural patrimony, and, and that is all burned to the ground. And if you remember, the art museums in Norway were not super protected either. There was that uh, a milk painting that kept getting stolen over and over and over again uh, from the same museum, and they would hang it back on the wall and it'd get stolen again the next year because... That was the thing now in Norway. Right. And uh, it's very difficult to get arts funding uh, in general and uh, extra difficult to get uh, funding for uh, just regular uh, upkeep and physical plant of a museum and, and uh, perhaps somewhat less so security uh, once a, uh, a gang of sophisticated uh, heisters is on the loose. And so and some of these heists are right out of an action movie. Right. If if John Woo hadn't already made Once a Thief and remade it a couple times, he would have to do it again because, you know, there's like vehicles are set on fire, causing a distraction. And then they uh, go in and, and grab the stuff while the police aren't looking or there's rappelling down from the ceiling. This is straight out of Mission Impossible uh, kind of stuff. Uh, so the thing going on here, of course, is that these are objects of uh, incredible importance to uh, to China, and the period in which this was sacked is known as the Century of Humiliation. And back in the day when uh, China was uh, run uh, by straight-up communists, uh, there was a period there where, yeah, that was humiliating and everything. And in fact, that site has never been rebuilt. It's been left deliberately uh, destroyed as a as an open wound, as a a, uh, a focus of of uh, resentment and uh, uh, anti-Western antagonism. But as uh, China has morphed into much more of a capitalistic authoritarian uh, system, the uh, very richest uh, people now have a status incentive in recovering all of these things that were uh, uh, stolen uh, from the, particularly from the old summer palace. But of course that wasn't the, the only looting. And uh, one of the companies involved, there's a giant company called the, uh, the Poly Group, the China Poly Group, which has basically subsidiaries that do essentially everything. It's a giant conglomerate. And they've spun off uh, a company called Poly Culture, and its whole job is to uh, become the uh, stewards and, and caretakers of uh, repatriated art. Um, so, for example, a couple of years back, you may remember that Yves Saint Laurent uh, had an estate sale. He owned two of the Zodiac heads, and these are sculpted heads of the of the twelve uh, zodiac signs, the Chinese zodiac signs, um, and they're really gorgeous. He owned two of them in his private collection, and he was going to put them up for public auction. And the, the Chinese said, basically, this is our cultural patrimony. This is looted material. And in fact, a, a deal was struck where those two things were withdrawn from auction. Christie's suddenly got the first franchise uh, from a Western auction house to operate independently in China, and the Poly Group 
uh, took custody of those heads, and they've now got four of them of the twelve. And uh, of of the twelve, another five are completely unaccounted for. And uh, the people who own the other ones, they're probably bolstering their security. Yeah. The fun thing about the polygroup's nature is it's not just sort of a big old friendly, you know, multinational uh, building shoes and toys. It began making weapons for the Chinese army and the head of polygroup's art repatriation unit and sort of one of the founders of, of polygroup is a guy named Ping He, who apparently used to be some kind of a big deal. He was a major general in the army, and he was part of the military intelligence bureaucracy of China. So he's a guy who might know some guys. Yeah, he's a guy who might know some guys, and might also have some connections with the great sort of deniability of, oh, it's a shame all that stuff got stolen. Oh, look, we found who did it, and we bought it from them. And no, we're not giving it back because it was our stuff to begin with. So too bad for you. So the the connection is not just these nationalist Chinese billionaires. And again, the other aspect of the changeover from Maoism to Dengism and post-Dengism is that the national artistic history of China becomes much more important during the 80s and uh, and forward to today because under Mao, all that art was superstition. And I mean, Mao blew up more art than the British and the French could have done in a million billion years. Right. And if not superstition, it was, it was, uh, the, the corrupt, uh, outcome of, uh, of predatory feudalism. Right. It was, it was, it was, it was counter-revolutionary in every way, you know, destroying, you know, hold, uh, you know, religious institutions in the sense of all of the churches knocked down, that kind of thing. So that was the other big shift is that as Deng moves, not just to capitalism, but to nationalism as a unifying force for the country, suddenly the national past of China uh, becomes a bigger deal. And they start saying, no, we want all of the beautiful uh, arts and things that are, you know, part of, you know, uh, they, they express Taoist notions of nature and Confucian notions of heaven and cool Buddhist Buddhas and all the other things that under Mao would have been, you know, bulldozed are now once again valuable art objects. And that further drives, uh, this sort of, uh, nationalistic competition amongst these young, fun billionaires, many of whom, uh, as, uh, with Beng He have perhaps some kind of connection to the, uh, military and intelligence security system. Because again, as in Russia, you don't get to be a billionaire without the government being cool with it. And you don't get to the government to be cool with it unless you're willing to do a couple of favors. So that's the, uh, that's the situation. And the question is, I guess, who's, uh, running whom is this billionaires, uh, engaged in a fun sort of a, um, uh, around the world in 80 days competition, or is this the government working through relatively deniable agents like the polygroup and like these other, uh, art collectors? Right. But because, uh, these, the particular stolen items that have now been stolen back are, have, none of them have, have resurfaced, but you can envision certainly that there's, uh, there are vaults and that, uh, when, uh, Chinese billionaires go to visit each other's houses. Perhaps those vaults get opened and the things get, uh, uh, shown around and there's the, uh, level of, uh, of competition and status that you get. One particular Chinese oligarch shocked the world by, uh, uh, bidding up the price of this, uh, this vase, uh, far higher than anyone thought and then, uh, and then drinking out of it at the end. So that's clearly a bravura move and, uh, and the sort of theatrical quality of 
uh, Chinese oligarchs is even greater than that of Russian oligarchs. Yeah, I think in, in right. Russia, you want to keep your head down a bit because you want to be just as flashy as everybody else, but you want to be more flashy because then someone will target you and take all of your stuff and give it to Putin. Whereas in, uh, in China, at least at the moment, the feeling is there's more than enough billions to go around. And so there's some uh, really uh, sort of over the top uh, larger than life characters and it's easy to envision them showing their, their stuff off to each other. My favorite of these characters is not one of the billionaires, but is a, is an art scholar named Lu Yang. Yes. And he goes around to museums that have a lot of looted Chinese art and just sort of goes through as a scholar and says, Oh, look at all this looted art from China. And he makes little notes in Chinese. He shows up with an entourage of lawyers and he terrifies the hell out of museum officials. <laughs> and so um, uh, he published a book that was the c- first comprehensive inventory of the 1860 Summer Palace's looted art, right? And the week after his book is published is the robbery at the Chateau Fontainebleau in which only things in his book are stolen. <laughs> and they, they call him up and they say, what happened? And he says, have you looked for signs of looting? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he goes, now he goes to uh, museums and he, and he does his little notes and he, and he comes back to China and he goes on the museum website and the art that he was looking at is no longer on the website. And in many cases is no longer being displayed. And is in some cases they're displaying it, but behind new bulletproof glass or, or yes. whatever. So he's, he's kind of my favorite of all these characters. I mean, I mean, everybody loves a, a, a racy zillionaire or a shadowy military intelligence guy, but I like an art scholar who just travels the globe terrifying museums. Yes. Uh, that guy's, that guy's cool. In the GQ piece, there's also a great quote from a, uh, European curator who's just like, I just don't understand why the Chinese aren't more concerned about, they, they just don't have the same attitude about criminality. It's like, I don't know. I think, Maybe they have a somewhat longer perspective on criminality. <laughs> they may have exactly the same attitude about criminality. It's just that they apply it differently. Yes. The statute of limitations may be a little longer. <laughs> yeah. This is uh, uh, basically a, uh, a, a feng shui scenario has already been written for you. Where, right. Uh, and, of course, all you need to do is make one of the Zodiac heads uh, redolent uh, with chi power and have... Uh, or say uh, that accumulating them all opens up a gate. Yes. A time gate. And, uh, you know, you, where, wherever you put that artifact becomes a feng shui site in the, in the mythology of that game. And, uh, you know, like I said, this is basically the plot of Once a Thief, except in Once a Thief, they're trying to get a, what looks like a pre-Raphaelite keen painting. And here you'd actually be getting a, a Chinese artifact. I'm sure, if, you know, the next time they remake that movie, which they surely will, it will definitely be something, uh, looted from the Summer Palace. And, you know, all we need to make that whole movie be real. Uh, in this story is for someone to show up at one of these heists, uh, shooting razor sharp playing cards at somebody. And then, then that'll be the, the whole thing. So, uh, do we even need to do anything more to turn this into a, a scenario hook? It's one of those, you know, uh, situations where the, the heisters are kind of sympathetic, really. And you're kind of rooting for them to get back the, the cultural uh, patrimony. Well, in many ways, that's what makes this such a good story for gaming is that you can imagine playing a group of international heisters that are maybe working for the Chinese or maybe they're working for the British trying to get their, uh, their, 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 uh, bronze ox head back or at least trying to find some other artifact that got, uh, lifted in the, in the theft from Cambridge. You hesitate to say there are no bad guys in a side that includes the Chinese communist government because whatever else is going on, those were the bad guys. But 
this immediate story is, it, it kind of has that, that multivalence that, that a good uh, crime story has where you're sort of sympathetic for the criminal and you're sort of sympathetic for the cops and you're watching it just to see what fun stuff can happen. But that also makes it, uh, really open to, uh, recruiting player character teams. And then you discover that either, uh, the Fontainebleau Museum is run by vampires or the Poly Group is run by vampires or they're each run by vampires. And this is the, you know, the, the war between the, the Zhang Ji in China who are, um, uh, rising up against the, the hated, uh, Draculist imperialists and the Linnea Dracula in Europe that are like, we stole all that art because it was magic and important and we needed it for our alchemy and how dare they take it. And, um, you are the, the innocent guy between two bad guys, uh, as the, the masks come off. Or maybe only one of them is vampires, which makes life a little bit simpler. But it can be fun if it's the side that you thought you were sympathetic to. So on the one hand is the Chinese communist government uh, out there, you know, murdering a million Uyghurs. But on the other side is vampires. And now you have the opposite side where you got a, a Hitler and a Stalin or an Iran or an Iraq. And you're like, I don't know that I want either one to win. How do we steal the bronze head? And make a billion dollars and retire to somewhere tropical uh, and non-communist. And, and that's sort of the goal of the player characters. Uh, yeah, I was going to do this just as a straight-up action heist movie. The twist would be, you know, when you when the team of professionals uh, commits the heist, the, uh, you know, the loose cannon one decides to steal something that's not on the list just for themselves. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the honor of uh, whoever's commissioned the heist is at stake because they're very deliberately making a point by only taking things uh, that were housed in the summer palace. And yeah, that's another priceless bit of art and it's a bit of priceless Chinese art, but we're not making that point. Right. And now you violated our honor code. And, uh, and so we're going to come after you for, uh, for breaking the uh, very, we gave you very specific rules and that's where the, the beginning of the, the third act uh, action begins. Um, and on that note, I think we'd uh, ourselves uh, better uh, set some cars on fire uh, to create a diversion and see what's on the other side of this segment. Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666. He discovered the way that alchemical truths That sounds be- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for 
Ask the Gown by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Keep our protective laser beams on by joining such Patreon backers as... Jamie Twine. Randy Ship, Isaac Priestley. James Pearson. And Linda and Mike Schiffer. The zapping between the pins of the Jacob's Ladder, the hum of the Van de Graaff Generator, the burbling of the retorts, all invites us to have fun with science. Patreon backer Polydemus asks us to have specific fun with science because Polydemus was listening to Dan Egan talk about his book, The Death and the Life of the Great Lakes. Polydemus couldn't help but note the dates of Atlantic lampreys first appearing above Niagara Falls in the 1920s, wiping out honest American and Canadian trout, except for a few relic populations, leading to masses of dead fish, washing up on beaches, special lamprey poisons, and the importation of Pacific coho salmon in the 1960s to restock the lakes. Polydemus has noticed that when you have a story that connects the 20s and the 60s, perhaps you have something mythosy going on, especially if it has lampreys in it, which are mythos monsters without even Cthulhu in them. They're horrible. <laughs> yes. I don't know if anyone has ever seen a lamprey, but Google lamprey and then try and sleep tonight. Yes. Uh, so they, uh, and, and they're very tricky. First of all, they, they want you to think they're eels, but they're actually fish. They have these great, uh, rasping mouths that they, uh, stick onto the side, like a big old sucker, t- uh, to a, as, uh, Polydemus says, an, an honest trout, and then they just, uh, just, uh, drink the inside of its prey, and, uh, it's a very nasty way to go, if, even if you're a trout, uh, and accustomed to bad things happening to you. And so, the, uh, the reason sea lampreys, uh, decide to become freshwater lampreys, uh, begins in, uh, the 1920s, because this is when, uh, Canada constructs the St. Lawrence Seaway, and that's a system of canals and locks, that uh, basically make the Great Lakes connected to the sea and make it a, a an inland seaport, basically. And, of course, if you're allowing big old ships to come in, you're also allowing all manner of uh, invasive species. And there's been a whole wave of different inv- invasive species over the years. And with the lampreys, uh, once they wiped out all of the... Uh, all of the trout as the as the top predator. Another invasive species, the alewives, came in and its population uh, went uh, crazy. And then they ate all of the available food and then died off in great numbers, leaving great giant heaps of rotting fish uh, on the shores of the Great Lakes, uh, which is uh, uh, always unpleasant and, and horrible in its own way. Uh, so at this point, a biologist named Vernon Applegate figured that the way to get rid of the lampreys uh, was to, uh, that they were vulnerable to poison when they were just fingerlings. And so they put uh, an anti-lamprey poison in the lakes that killed off the lamprey. And so there's now some still, there's a remnant population, but they're they're not out of control the way they used to be. They figured that they killed like 90 to 95% of the lampreys. Right. Uh, but this sort of becomes a, a Great Lakes version of the, the lady who swallowed a fly, right? That um, So now what do we do with all the alewives? And that's where the bringing in the the coho salmon in the 1960s come in, bring in the salmon, they eat the alewives, and then the salmon then die off because there's no alewives to die on. Uh, but the the lakes aren't free of invasive species uh, yet. Now uh, the big uh, ships are offloading uh, uh, different uh, mollusks and crustaceans, and so we now have zebra and quagga mussels, 
they lie at the bottom of the lakes and they eat up all the delicious phytoplankton and that uh, prevents uh, the fish who would normally be eating them from eating them and then uh, creates this big sort of clear space for this uh, horrible lake weed uh, called uh, Chattafora to grow. So it's just a, a classic story of opening a closed ecosystem, connecting it to a bigger open ecosystem and, and whoops, uh, that turns out to be uh, sort of a, a, a horror-style parable of taking uh, a little bit of uh, forbidden knowledge, a lot of bit of uh, messing with nature, and a whole bunch of uh, uh, creepery, uh, watery consequences. So uh, how do we then do the, the obvious thing that polygamists suggest and uh, make this Cthulhu-y? Well, um, to begin with, uh, obviously, whatever it is has to have a mass of lampreys at its base. Uh, that's, that's our, that's our sort of story hook. So the lampreys have to be connected to it somehow. And one can either, uh, posit that wherever enough sea lampreys live, they create a sort of, uh, hive mind or tulpa or something that spreads from them, or that they are merely the spore of something that actually came into the Great Lakes in 1919 with the Wallen Canal and uh, that the lampreys were merely their outward sign. And that uh, in, in the one case, killing a zillion lampreys solves the problem or at least mitigates it. And in the other case, it only attacks the symptoms. So you sort of want to decide how bad is the problem at the moment that your story is set. And if you're setting it in 1966 or 1965 uh, as a fall of Delta Green campaign before the introduction of the coho salmon, then Maybe you are establishing the, the second one, uh, or the, rather the first one where the lampreys themselves are the problems. The, the TFM lamprey side poison field tested in 1957. They begin using it in 1958. So the fall of Delta Green moment is between the lamprey side poison and the introduction of the salmon. Uh, something is going on and that might merely be that the lamprey entity is fighting back or it might be that the, it was actually the dead fish that were the secret because lampreys, I don't know how much people know about lampreys, but the way that they go after things is they vampirize them. They, they put their hideous multi-tooth sucker mouths on the side of a bigger fish and they slurp out its, uh, bodily fluids and its blood and its guts into their hideous lamprey body. And so they're basically floating vampires. So the notion being that it's not so much the vampires themselves that are the problem. It's the death. That is the uh, specific opportunity. And so introducing the lamprey poison solves exactly half the problem, but the wrong half, because the death remains and the death is what's building up the energy. And that's what they had to stop. What Delta Green had to stop in 1966 by uh, tossing in a bunch of uh, coho salmon. And one assumes also sending a bunch of agents out in small boats into the foggy waters of Lake Michigan. of different points at which you can say, well, no, that was the real problem. No, that was the real problem. And then, of course, uh, you can, as Robin suggests, say that the introduction of the zebra mussel uh, coming in in the 80s has once is the is the strike back of, of this lake entity that uh, either got awakened by all the lampreys or came in with the lampreys. Because you can always say that there was a lake entity that the lampreys woke up, right? right? That it came from primordial times when the Great Lakes and uh, the Atlantic were, were already linked by by a water channel before the uh, North America closed that off. Well, this, of course, is a story of, of corrupt, choking fecundity. Uh, so I'd right. be inclined to look at uh, Shabnagurath, the 
uh, the, the lamprey with a thousand young, or uh, probably more like the alewife with a thousand young. And so uh, the, the lampreys may merely have been the necessary precursor to the, the alewife invasion, and now uh, she's switched on over to, to mussels, and her whole goal all around the world probably is to uh, aid the introduction of invasive species that will destroy ecosystems. So uh, she she uh, possibly in a co-sponsorship with Zithogua might be responsible for the cane toads in Australia. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, um, versions of this story that you can tell and you might uh, global it up by discovering, well, wait a minute, what other ecosystems are being uh, destroyed by uh, runaway species who eat all the food? If you look at them all on the globe, it may be that you know, this is a, a pattern being created for a great rising so that as soon as you, you know, get those coho salmon in the lake to eat up the alewives, now, now you have to go and find out about the cane toads or, or what have you. Yeah, that that becomes part of a, of a global species death or species imbalancing story as you, you know, can carry that story around the world, a global cult of Shubnigarath instead of a, a local cult, I guess. Right, because there's reasons that she's associated with the goat, and, be, and that, is, of course, is not just the the whole, you know, satanic thing and the, the cloven hooves and what have you, but they are ecologically punishing. They will eat anything. They're all devouring. Right. They're, they're a disaster. They're part of what made the Sahara a big desert in 3000 BC, is they ate all the uh, the ground cover. So this could be, you know, that she is uh, looking for other things that are as destructive as goats, and uh, that's the way, you know, the, the world as we know it will end not with, uh, the, uh, you know, overt stomping across the globe of your, uh, Cthulhu's or your, uh, uh, you know, your Yogg-Sothoth phasing into sight, but just, you know, all of the ecosystems slowly die and become monocultures, uh, just the way there are periods in earth history where there's like, that is one kind of boring dinosaur. That's all there is basically. <laughs> Everything else died off. And here's a couple of 10 or 20 uh, million years where it's just, yeah, there's just four dinosaurs. That's all there is. Well, uh, we might be getting that with uh, with lampreys and alewives and cane toads and and goats, of course. Don't forget the goats. Now, on now on the local level, I want to uh, give a shout out to the Lake Michigan monster, uh, which was spotted uh, sea serpent style off uh, Chicago, uh, all from Evanston down to Hyde Park. It seems really to have been the Chicago monster, not the whole Lake Michigan monster, uh, because there's very few. Uh, sightings of a, of a great monster anywhere else in the lake. Uh, but it, it, from 1867 and 1890, there were many spottings. And in 1867, the fisherman, uh, saw it a mile and a half from shore, uh, and described it as being bluish black with a grayish white underbelly, long neck, a human head or a human sized head and visible scales. Now that could have been a, a lamprey that could have been a gigantic lamprey that was the Chicago monster and that it draw it drew these lampreys to it with its psychic powers and that it might just be uh, I'd say just it might just be a really cool um uh single monster hunt that you have to do in 1966 when you're out there uh, ahead of the of, of the salmon as the as the Chicago monster gets mad that, that you're poisoning all of its its lamprey kin. Yeah, it could be that the the Welling Canal has gotten a bad rap all these years and that the uh, Chicago Lake monster was there all along and in 1920 it died and split up into uh tens of thousands of lampreys and uh it might just be uh the remaining lampreys might all be gathering uh, together, not even in 1960, but perhaps even in 2018, to all get together and reform and reform and uh, and get ready to uh, to vote for uh, 
uh, whoever's going to run to replace Ram Emanuel. Exactly. As, as speaking of, speaking of Chicago monsters. <laughs> yes. It's, it's well known that lake monsters uh, vote early and vote often. I said and, they're uh, a Chicago monster. Did I not? <laughs> Righto. Okay. Well, it's time for us to, uh, to swim like uh, predatory lampreys in search of helpless trout uh, through this commercial to whatever lies on the other side. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs to wave at the portrait of the glowering Madame Blavatsky and swoop on through into the Edwardian parlor where awaits the consulting occultist. This time around, Patreon backer Derek Upham uh, would like the consultants to opine on a case of ritual magic being used against self-driving cars. And uh, he found a Vice.com article about the uh, artist James Bridal. But I would recommend, in fact, that you go to his website so you can uh, look directly at uh, his explanation of this uh, art installation that he did. So this is a a well-established uh, maker of art installations and a, uh, a cultural critic and a giver of TED Talks. And uh, he's based in London. And this particular art installation in which his essay derives heavily from J.G. Ballard uh, looks at the sort of danger of self-driving cars and then goes on to say it's not self-driving cars themselves that are the problem, but still. And in fact, he created his own self-driving car project in which he trained a car to drive around the mountains of central Greece. And the, that location may, may come into our discussion later. And uh, instead of a standard, however, uh, system that where you tell it where to go and it goes there, uh, this one sort of goes randomly from place to place and uh, it sort of becomes a, a bit of an explorer. But part of his uh, installation is he drew a, a magic circle, a salt circle, what was really the round you know, highway pattern. And once the car goes in that, its sensors tell it not to go out because it's not allowed to cross those lines. So that's his uh, magic circle of protection to trap self-driving cars. So Ken, what did uh, you think of when you first saw this story? I mean, I, uh, first of all, I liked it because who doesn't like goetic magic? I think everyone likes it. Uh, the other thing is that it's definitely an art happening. It's not a real thing. The self-driving car, he says, you know, deeper in the interview that he didn't quite build a self-driving car. He's sort of gotten close. He's got all of the data up on his website, like he says. 
So it's definitely a piece of art. It is not yet a working, um, but I guess we're glad that he's doing the art first and the working second. That's uh, much better than Crowley's method. So the the, the notion that the, the cars themselves are demons in the sense that they are intelligences not controlled by a soul is, I think, kind of strong. I, I, I'm not sure whether he goes deep into the soulness of it, although he's got a lot of really cool stuff, as you say, on his website that I think is well worth looking at. Maybe we'll get into some of that. Um, I just sort of, you know, it was it was a good joke, well done, which is pretty much all you can say about performance art these days. So good for him. Him and Duchamp can uh, clink a glass together. And mentioning Duchamp, of course, is apt because the Surrealists, especially as we know them from Dream Hounds of Paris, were famous for going on their random uh, foot travels through Paris, and in Dream Hounds of Paris, that is described as a way of entering the dreamlands in a waking state, that if you uh, randomly went to the right uh, places and, and allowed yourself to enter the right state of consciousness, that you could then walk into uh, what would then be one of the cities of the dreamlands, and you could either stay in that city or walk out of that city to other places in the dreamland. So it may very well be in a contemporary Cthulhu uh, scenario in which the Dream Hands of Paris material about this surrealists uh, reshaping the dreamlands is uh, canonical, it may be that this is turning into a, uh, with or without the fictionalized version of the artist's knowledge, turning into a, a way of driving uh, into the dreamlands. Because, of course, you can't ask your GPS to drive you to diathlene. Right, yeah, you can't just plug that in. No, but if you get in a car and just let it keep driving... You can't even go to a lower Wacker Drive, much less diathlene. Exactly. Of course, the fact that uh, the uh, he chose the hills of central Greece, well, we know that there's a mountain in the dreamlands where the remnants of the old gods uh, dance, and it's their sort of replacement Olympus, so uh, perhaps, indeed, this is the where you would wind up. You'd wind up at the, at the foothills of that mountain, uh, and they might or might not uh, take notice of your Prius, uh, but uh, certainly other. Uh, and you know, what does your Prius look like when it passes uh, into the dreamlands? Does it uh, become a, a, a Lord Dunsany style crazy carriage, or have the Surrealists left enough of their mark that it, uh, you know, is a thing that pulses with eyeballs, or you know, has it uh, gone through yet another uh, art revolution, and and is it? Uh, you know, full of crosshatching and, and dots. And is it a, a Roy Lichtenstein car? You never know until you go. And uh, speaking of Mount Parnassus, it was the home of uh, Pegasus, the winged horse, who was another self-driving vehicle. So perhaps only self-driving cars can enter the dreamlands because if there's a person in them, the person over overwrites it and they keep driving around in, in Greece or wherever. So the person has to be dosed with the sacred wine of Dionysus who also hung out on Mount Parnassus or a formulation created by the uh, Corsairian nymphs who uh, worshipped Apollo or some Orphic uh, thing. Maybe you have to have a specific song on your radio because of course Orpheus was raised on uh, Mount Parnassus, which was sacred to the muses as well. Uh, it might be the horse with no name. The horse with no name. Exactly. You have to put on, <laughs> you have to put on a terrible, <laughs> you have to just keep listening to a song, a song by the band America until you can't stand it. <laughs> and, uh, and this would explain too, why you need to have a trap to trap your self-driving car. Because once I, I was envisioning previously that you would get in the car and go to the dreamlands. But of course, 
it's a self-driving car, which you can do, you know, people ride in it, but you could also send it off on its own. If your real objective was to assemble information on the dreamlands and see exactly which of today's artists are reshaping it and how you become one of those artists, or uh, perhaps you are one of those artists and you're afraid you've done damage and want to start undoing it, that uh, you send your car without a, a passenger along the roads until it uh, winds up in the dreamlands and then it comes back. Well, once it comes back, it may have other ideas. Yeah. It may no longer wish to obey your uh, instructions. So naturally you have to trap it in order to uh, prevent it from continuing to drive on and cause trouble, uh, either as uh, with the mind of a Pegasus or uh, with, uh, you know, uh, m- there might be moon beasts in it. You don't want that. You don't want them getting out. And so that's why you have to uh, uh, have a magic circle uh, in which to entrap your self-driving car and then, you know, uh, first uh, deal with the moon beasts, however, however one does that. And, uh, you know, if it's a hot, sunny day, first of all, that's you have an advantage. So wait until that, you know, just kind of leave them in the car, I think, probably on a hot day, and that will take care of them mostly. Yeah. And then you can download all the uh, information, uh, all the mapping information, the, the proto-Google maps of the Dreamlands, as it were. And, in fact, maybe it's not an art installation at all. Maybe it is one of these great data companies is trying to, uh, you know, be the first to uh, to map the Dreamlands uh, so that... Uh, uh, people can more reliably travel through it because, you know, the, the market in apps is starting to get saturated. But if people can have dream phones uh, with dream apps on them, I'm sure Google wants a piece of that. Right. Absolutely. You just imagine the social media impact alone of Ulthar. Uh, yes, indeed. That would, would be uh, a superpower. Uh, if you're looking for a direct connection between or more direct, direct is such a ridiculous word in this context, a more direct <laughs> con- uh, connection between your Yellow King role playing game or your Dreamhounds game. And uh, this phenomenon, I point you, Robin, to the neighborhood in Paris, the area known as Montparnasse, which is named for guess what? Mount Parnassus. Yes, indeed. And uh, you can tie it, if you wish, into the Parnassist school of poets. They were all guys who thought Theophile Gautier was the bomb and uh, wrote a bunch of uh, classical uh, themed poets, uh, poetry. So maybe some of that is uh, what you get to uh, dig through. There were also Polish and Spanish and Romanian Parnassians or Parnassists. And fortunately, they were also very fond of Schopenhauer, who we all know is the guy who sort of mainstreams uh, nihilism and uh, pessimism. So you got your Legati uh, tour around into straight up Lovecraft that way. If you desire to find a Parnassist poem that welcomes you to the other worser part of the dreamlands, not friendly Ulthar, but as Robin alluded previously, creepy, horrible Dileth or God awful Lang or Inganok, uh, those can be uh, out of Parnassus poetry that you are tracing somehow between Greece and France and you have to draw protective circles when the vehicles come out of uh, Montparnasse or out of Parnassus and they are phantom uh, carriages or phantom cars, uh, a car driven by itself up until a few years ago would have been a haunt. We would have known there was ghosts in it. Maybe right. that's what's going on. Maybe that is what's going on. Maybe Elon Musk has actually just got a necromancer on staff and self-driving cars are nonsense and could never work unless you bind a ghost into the machinery. And that's how the self-driving cars are being made to function. And the reason that they're bulky and and bad at their little self-driving jobs is 
ghosts are bulky and don't like to be bound. And uh, what the, the uh, mental strain of that might uh, explain some of his recent tweets. Yeah, it could be. It could be some ghosting. And of course, you can do the thing where the players think you're doing Christine. Right. Uh, so it seems to be the ghostly car, and then it turns out to have been the car that's been to the dreamlands and back, and it's been changed, and then right. that's the. Uh, you know, the secret truth under the apparent truth. Yeah, while we're talking about ghosts and uh, the lovely and talented uh, James Bridle, I want to point out something on his website uh, that he calls the London Render Search, in which he's looking for the people pictured in computer-generated images of future buildings. So when you go to a construction site, you'll see that they have a picture of what the building's going to look like. And in the old <laughs> days, it was just sort of sketchy architecture dudes with um, uh, sort of solid colors. But now, A lot of architecture dudes are sketchy. Right? They are, but these were sketch- sketched even, as well as sketchy. Uh, and they are now computer-generated people that are used to populate the sidewalks or, or uh, food courts or whatever of this coming architectural monstrosity. And our man Bridal has been on a search for the individual people and has been constructing simulacra of them that he leaves around London and putting their pictures up. He's basically hoping to be eaten by a tulpa, uh, is what it sounds like to me. It's but, like a great r- rising of tulpas, yes. But, th- but this notion of the render people, who are the render ghosts that, that live in these renderings, it has brought him, according to himself, uh, to Los Alamos, looking for a group of rendering people who apparently were all in Albuquerque at one time. And that, of course, implies the shadowy uh, figures that were put into the towns that were bombed during the nuclear tests to see whether the, you know, how much of the town would be destroyed by a nuclear weapon. And their um, little human shadows are baked into the desert so that there's a sort of a hideous nuclear tulpa wandering around Los Alamos just waiting to be, uh, or Nevada at least, being waiting to be eaten or, or eat somebody. And so maybe James Bridle has, has um, uh, made contact with with these guys. Uh, you got a whole world of of mysterious tulpas, and of course, tulpas, uh, of course, are another passageway from the world of dream, or at least the world of the astral, to the world of reality. So, tulpas and render people may be people from the dreamlands that have been depicted, uh, and the computers are the same algorithms that are building these. Uh, self-driving cars are building these dreamlands people and the boundary between dreamlands and reality keeps getting broken down, not least by people like James Bridle, who keeps putting up dreamlands people on walls. And uh, in the Ezoterrorists, we want to switch gumshoe games for a moment. Of course, cognitively dissonant art installations are uh, among the uh, weapons of the different Ezoterror cells. So it may well be that a, a fictionalized artist is using the uh, self-driving car to, uh, poke holes in the membrane and that eventually uh you know the the car that comes back is uh infested by an outer dark entity so that you've uh, uh rather than your your ghost car or your uh, moon beast driven car you've got a demon car uh for the uh members of the ordo veritatis to battle yeah he's also his website is really kind of a an esoteric working menu he's got a project by which you sort of humanize drones which seems like a terrible <laughs> idea Yes, you don't want self-targeting drones. That is, that is definitely that. a problem. Because at the very least, putting a salt circle around a drone is harder in that it will just fly away. Um, <laughs> the, the, the salt falls. Yes, and, and you don't want your drones penetrating into the into the dreamlands or the outer dark or whatever it is because that will make people mad and they'll, they'll come after us. We, don't, we have enough trouble 
on on this world. We don't want to start a war with the, with the ultra-terrestrials. And he um, uh, has a uh, meditation on the space blanket as a symbol and uh, artifact that he carefully makes sure to to say is no connection. Or rather, he uses it to debunk the mysterious Black Knight satellite. Um, and so obviously that is the way that the esoterists work that in is with the, the, the badly done debunking, um, and then tying it into other crises that make us wonder about the world, such as, uh, the Taliban and, uh, the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean, all of which he pulls together from, uh, the space blanket. So, uh, this guy is definitely wired in, uh, to what's going on. So even if, uh, James Bridle himself is just a simple performance artist and a delightful fellow. He may be tied in to the Esoterror cabal just because he knows them because they're all in East London together. Right. Or, or rather, of course, a fictional version of him. Yeah. We're we sure mean, that the real we James, mean James Bridle, Saddle, an entirely different artist. Exactly. I'm sure the actual James Bridle is a, a wonderful person and probably hangs out a lot with Ian Sinclair would also be my guest. Right. Yeah, and if he doesn't, they, those two kids ought to get together. Exactly. And uh, one of the other uh, fun things that he mentions in his essay about the self-driving cars is, is as a source of inspiration at a sort of a, a proto-hacking event, uh, which is, again, uh, this link probably has also been sent to William Gibson, I would guess, uh, because one of his inspirations is in 1978, proto-hackers from the autonomous wing of, uh, of Marxism, uh, which is all about uh, doing it for yourself instead of having the vanguard tell you what to do. Uh, Premier Andriotti was coming to Bologna, and they didn't want him to show up and do an event, so they uh, hacked the traffic system so that all of the traffic lights uh, malfunctioned. And uh, for security reasons, uh, the Premier didn't leave the Bologna airport. So uh, that also sounds like uh, something that could easily be roped into a uh, cosmic psychogeographical uh, take on all of these uh, all of these new technologies. So there's definitely sort of a a blend of uh, uh, Gibson and uh, and Ballard and uh, uh, whatever uh, new era uh, horror figures uh, we want to uh, pull into the mix here. But it's certainly a uh, as you say, he is uh, definitely wired in to the sorts of things that we can are wired into. And um. Uh... Further uh, to that, I suppose we can close where he opens his essay on um, automatic uh, self-driving cars is New York City in 1925, The American Wonder, a self-driving car invented by a former army engineer named Francis P. Houdina, uh, (laughs) who had a radio-controlled car and got Harry Houdini angry at him because Harry Houdini thought Francis P. Houdina was stealing his name. So a a feud between a radio-controlled engineer who's sending a self-driving car, who knows, maybe to Ulthar, and Harry Houdini, buddy of H.P. Lovecraft, who will perhaps uh, coincidentally die the next year. Lots of pregnant stuff there just for your straight-up regular old Cthulhuing, uh, much less your Dreamhounds et al., uh, and I guess when we have gone all the way back around to the beginning, then we have gone all the way back around to the end. And we should get out of our self-driving car and avoid the gaze of the render people and fade into the background before another week has passed.
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by Jim Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Ward this podcast against self-willed vehicular harm by joining such Patreon backers as... Peter Nix. Philip Masters. Tenant Reed, Ben White, and Volpine. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Metaphor Drift, Metaphor Drift. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff.